Welcome, folks. Welcome. Left Reckoning, I'm Matt Leck. With me, David Griscom. Hello, David. It's Left Reckoning 93. Yeah, man. I just realized we're only a few away from 100. After a hundo. I know. It's pretty it's nuts, right? Crazy. Uh, yeah, tonight, jam-packed show. Uh, to culminate the night, I'll go in reverse order. We have Ryan Zickraff, uh unearthing some Tennessee labor history. Uh, want to stick around for that? Also, got Nick from the Deck Collective on to talk about where the hell, what the hell's going on with the student <laughs> loan relief stuff, with all the uh, little trolling, lo- little legal trolls we got in this country. That yeah, want to get in. That's fair. In the way of uh, of uh, you know executive action um on, on that matter so uh that and uh, and we got an update on some um some of the dark one of the darker parts of american uh uh society with regards to its treatment of uh, tribal nations uh, yeah in between that so no it's got a pretty jam-packed uh, show and um b- before we jump into this uh this, the first story matt uh we also have a fun bonus episode coming up um this weekend because we haven't talked because we're part of the liberal establishment that is protecting FTX um, from. Oh, yeah. um, You know, because uh, we've been getting money and we've been cozying up to them. Uh, But Matt and I are bucking uh, that tradition uh, this weekend uh, with our guests promoting their new book. Uh, Well, Jacob Silverman, uh, it's funny because I didn't honestly, uh, I wasn't going to talk to him about crypto. Uh, I originally reached out because I wanted him to talk uh, talk to us about his new piece in uh, the New Republic on David Slack and the uh, crypto, uh, the libertarian, the tech libertarians. But I mean, I think we all know that these have significant crossovers. So we'll be uh, <laughs> we'll swimming in the same almost. pool. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, Andreessen Horowitz? Uh, a- 16Z, you might have seen this handle on Twitter, but they're all over helping Elon, like Jason Calacanis is helping um, these guys. And hey, you know, there might be so many fascinating features that $8 seems like a bargain. It's all the same NFT hucksters um, that we all know and uh, and despise. So patrons, you can sign up for that patreon.com slash left reckoning. You'll get access to that uh, on Sunday. Um, but man, I mean, talking about hucksters and online and elon musk people have been following i'm sure the trash fire that has been twitter since elon musk has taken over that company i was saying to matt or i might even said on the show that you know the one good thing about him taking over twitter is that for many people who might not follow you know business news or things like that very closely it's their first Mm. experience with an elon musk company and seeing how he runs things i think has probably not been very very good um for his uh public persona and he's been tweeting up a storm, you know, from doing things like mouthing off to Senator Markey, um, publicly harassing and firing employees. But you know one thing he's not been talking about, Matt? Hmm. Some um, very bad news for him and very good news for working people that came out of Austin, Texas uh, earlier today. Right here in Austin, uh, there were two filings today with the Federal Department of Labor over worker abuse at one of Musk's factories in Del Valle. Um, the Workers' Defense Project has filed um, in, uh, you know, on behalf of uh, multiple workers, uh, two violations in particular. One, um, the number one capitalist scam of all time, unpaid wages and unpaid overtime. And at least one worker uh, at this facility um, was given fake OSHA certification. 
And we have some more up here if you want to pull up this uh, graphic. Um, this is from Gus Bovin, the Texas Observer. Um, the title of the piece, you should read it, Elon Musk's Tesla Gigafactory. Um, Elon Musk's Tesla Gigafactory. Excuse me. Sorry, it's not coming up for me. I got it here. Elon Musk's Tesla Gigafactory built on wage theft and safety violations, Texas workers allege. And if you go down the piece, um, you know, it's a good recap of, of a lot of these different violations. Um, but reminding folks that back in summer of 2020, as Elon Musk was deciding to move Tesla headquarters to Texas, seemingly in protest of California COVID-19 restrictions, the, Ca- the Travis County Commissioner's Court approved a deal worth $14 million in property tax rebates for the Gigafactory. And I'll put a link in, in the show notes, too. People should listen to our interview with Bob Libel, who uh, ran here um, for the Travis County uh, Commissioner's Court Um you know, that that deal is actually even worse uh, than just that top line um, number that you're seeing there. Um, But the deal included some friendly labor terms, such as a $15 an hour wage floor, but it didn't include all the terms outlined in the so-called Better Builder Program, the signature initiative of workers' defense that for years has raised the floor in wages and safety for construction projects receiving government incentives in Central Texas. In particular, the deal lacked independent on-site monitoring of safety and wage payment, according to Workers' Defense Policy Director David uh, Chinkanchin. Um, when Workers' Defense first learned about Tesla coming to Travis County and seeking tax incentives, we opposed the project, given the history of labor and employment abuses on Tesla sites across the nation, um, David uh, Chinkanchin uh, said Tuesday. When the final deal included some worker protections, it was not the level of protections that the community wanted. And I just want to say it right here, you know, because I remember when uh, Musk ended up coming uh, to Austin, the Austin area, you know, people were very excited, right? It, it felt because there's a big and very embarrassing for a lot of cities, uh, mine included, um, kind of wooing campaign um, for him. And I think some people sort of saw it as like recognition of Austin being a sort of hub um, for ind- industry, finance and tech. Um, but Musk didn't come here. Uh, because he likes the food or because he likes the people, um, the culture, the weather, etc. He came here uh, for the same reason he brought SpaceX here, because he thought that Texans were rubes and that he could get away with abusing the land and working people here. He came here because he thought that the government would be much, much more friendly to his form of money making uh, than the government of California. And I think it's really important to remember that as we see things like uh, what's happened at the Tesla Gigafactory here, as we th- see things like he's done in South Texas, um, not just to the people who live there, but to the land, the the, the very clear disrespect um, for that part of the country. Uh, Musk came here because he thought he could get away with stuff. He ran away um, from California. Yes, um, because he didn't want COVID-19 workers' protections. It's important to remember who, what restrictions he was worried about, protections for working people, um, but also because he was facing um, you know, serious allegations of, <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say it, but extreme racism and workers' abuse at the Fremont uh, facility in California. He's running away um, from basic workers' protections in California and thinking he can get away with this kind of stuff here in Texas. Yeah, I mean, it's all cute for it to pretend like it's just the COVID stuff, which, by the way, 
uh, using COVID as leverage to uh, increase workplace safety and compensation is good. Um, but Elon, yeah, the Fremont factory had a developed culture of racism uh, to the point where like proper nouns, um, uh, name of stations, like, I mean, I don't want to say any, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, um, so uh, yeah. I mean, we're looking about like trying to put these things out there, but we said it once on this program and like, don't feel like saying them again. Right. Yeah. That's that's how I generally feel about it, but you should check out, check out, um, you know, our video on that as well. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it's, it's pretty egregious and, and nasty, you know, on top of that too, it's not just the racism, it's just general workers abuse. Um, you know, I mean, racialized like hierarchy as far as which, who does what jobs. Yeah. You know, like the ultimate, like, uh, uh, one of the original justifications of racism and regular, uh, um, regular union busting. And as you're seeing from his very public performance about how he tweet, uh, uh, excuse me, treats his, uh, Twitter employees, um, you know, just a very abusive culture across the board. And what happened here is, is really egregious, right? So the unpaid wages, um, but the safety as well. If you want to go over to this next slide, this is directly from uh, the filing. Um, it's from the, the filing um, on behalf of the workers from the Workers Defense Project. Um, one of the things on here, and this is one of those things that like might seem like not a big deal for people who don't know construction or things like that. But the protections that we have on the books are meant um, to ensure safety for workers themselves, like the actual person doing work, and also safety for other people who are on the floor with you, because you're obviously handling very dangerous equipment. You're doing jobs that need to be done in a certain way to maintain safety standards for other people. Um, so this whole apparatus of protections for workers is very important, and that includes the training. Uh, one of the people in this um, filing to the Federal Department of Labor uh, against Tesla, uh, Victor, I'll just read uh, one of the allegations here from uh, from the filing. On or about May 13th, 2021, Victor began working at the Travis County Tesla Gigafactory. On May 14th, 2021, um, CEO of Redacted sent him a fake digital OSHA certificate without providing any training. Victor had received training at another job, um, and the, the CEO told him not to worry about it, that he was going to need the certificate, and that he should use the certificate instead of his legitimate OSHA 10 card. Victor showed the safety director the fake digital OSHA 10 certificate to begin working on the Tesla Gigafactory worksite. On June 18th, the night foreman told Victor that he wanted to promote him during the night shift and that he needed another OSHA certification, OSHA 30, for the job. That same shift, Victor asked for OSHA 30 training and even offered to pay for it himself if he could be reimbursed later. Like this is somebody who actually wants, you know, this training because they want to be safe. They want other people to be safe. Um, a few days later on about June 21st, 2021, um, he said that he had already paid for the fake OSHA 30, um, OSHA 30 certificate on about June 22nd, 2021, um, redacted, gave Victor a fake digital cer- certificate that stated he had completed OSHA 30, even though he never received OSHA 30 training. I mean, this is like, this is fraud that is baked fraud. in. But remember that this isn't just like fraud in the sense, oh, you're not checking the right boxes. You're not filling out the right paperwork. This is life and death stuff for people. This is really yeah. important. And if you've ever worked in these industries, you're, you know, you know exactly how egregious this is. And it doesn't just uh, stop there. If you want to go to this uh, last slide, Matt, um, they interviewed a, a piece that came out in The Guardian uh, this morning. Um, 
which people should read as well. Tesla's construction workers at Texas, Tesla's construction workers at Texas Gigafactory allege labor violation um, by Alexandra Villarreal. Um, on Tuesday, this is from the piece. On Tuesday, Victor is filing a complaint with OSHA, part of the Department of Labor, over alleged fake certificates of completion for required training he says never happened. He told The Guardian that his team was directed to work on the metal factory roof at night with no lights, labor on top of turbines that were blowing smoke without protective masks, and otherwise put themselves at risk without basic information about how to stay safe. In one instance, um, Victor said he and his colleagues were expected to keep production on a flooded first floor, despite observing there was live wiring all over the place and cords in the water. He remembers telling his wife, I'm going to die in this factory. That's the kind of environment um, that Musk cultivates. One where people who are working do necessary labor to build, you know, his dream factory here, um, putting their lives at risk for his own profit. And it's something that should not stand. It's something that everybody should be mad about, but especially Texans, because this person is attacking your neighbors. He's attacking uh, working people in general, in general, and he thinks he can get away with it. He thinks he can get away with it. Um, and I mean, very brave and very thankful for organizations like um, Workers Defense out here doing that kind of work um, for workers in the construction in- industry who are oftentimes um, abused. Um, so, you know, we're going to be following this closely. And, and <clears throat> I didn't want to even bring this up. But let's also make something very clear, because I can already hear the whining, right? Excuse me, David. Mr. Musk is not the person who directly hired these people. They're contractors. <laughs> Shit. Elon Musk and all capitalists do this. They hire contractors so that when something like this happens, they can push the blame off on somebody else. At the end of the day, when you construct a factory like this, you are the end-all be-all, right? You are the authority before the government. Uh, to make sure that people are being taken care of. And people like Musk, capitals across this country, are very happy to push these things off onto contractors so that they can shield themselves legally, not because they care. Day one, Elon Musk could could have said, I want this to be one of the safest facilities in the country. Could have done that. Was encouraged to do that by people. Didn't. Wasn't interested in doing it. Um, And made the decision to hire people um, who put folks into this situation. And as Matt and I have reported many times, this is not just a one-off, oh, they made a bad call one time with one bad contracting company. This is a rampant problem in Elon Musk's operation. If it is Tesla, if it is his other companies, this is something that he's willing to do as a cost of business because he thinks he can get away with it. And he wants to have people who are exploited. He wants work to be done you know, in a manner that might not be safe because he thinks it might be cheaper and faster. These are de- executive decisions from the executive of a company, and he should be held account uh, for the decisions that he's made and the lives that he's put on the line. I missed this, but a reveal the journalism outfit uh, revealed in 2018, Tesla had fired employees for reporting unsafe work conditions. And uh, I did remember this belatedly adding injuries to the company logs. Mm. Um, and it's all, it's all, I mean, this yeah. is like, you see the way Elon micromanages this shit. And it's, this is what he thinks his skill set is. It's fucking with that sort of stuff. It's where you cut corners. And this is, this is, this is capitalism, right? Like the Koch brothers are, uh, I don't know if it's still the case, 
10 years or so ago, they were the responsible for the largest like payout in uh, mm-hmm. uh, civil uh, lawsuit history because of unsafe conditions with words of a, like a bit of a pipeline or something like that just exploded, was leaking and somebody drove through it and kaboom. Um, and, uh, and, the, and they, that was down to their method, which is figure out how to cut any fucking cost, particularly that, you know, pussy safety shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just want to do, you know, say something really quick um, because, you know, this area um, elected a, a very great ally of working people, Greg Kassar, who is now going to be in Congress, um, who tweeted this out today. Dozens of workers report wage theft and unsafe conditions while building the Tesla Gigafactory site in Texas 35 um, via the workers' defense. I support a full investigation by the United States Department of Labor. Every Texan has a right uh, to a safe workplace and their full paycheck under the law. And I just want to remind folks, um, one, it's important to have people like Greg in Congress. Um, mm-hmm. Two, this is exactly why I've been saying on this program and on Majority Report when I've been on, you know, that electing Greg was a big deal because it's not just another D in there. This is somebody who is willing to stand up yeah. and fight for these people. And we talk about rootedness a lot on this program. Um, you know what Greg did before he was on the city council, Matt? Remind me. He was the policy director of the workers defense project. Um, so he knows this fight better than even most people um, in, in his position. So we're very lucky to have somebody like that there because again, Musk thinks he can get a, around uh, with the uh, state government here. The state government's given him any, every indication they will and the county government too, which is dominated by Democrats, right? Um, it's going to be, a, I'm very hopeful that the federal government will remind Elon Musk um, of the laws that we have in this country uh, for working people. And I'm hoping that the, that we see some kind of serious action uh, on these abuses. Yeah. Uh, I think anybody with this many open questions, I think is deserving at least shut down any sort of subsidies and government contracts go into yes. uh, these sorts of, I mean, this is somebody, this is somebody who got public money for this facility, um, and took that public money, um, and didn't pay his workers. Sorry. Like, <laughs> I think a lot of people focused on the unpaid wages thing and I, I get fixated on the safety because it's life right. and death, but the unpaid wages is unbelievable from just straight up unpaid wages to not paying people on overtime. So you're taking people away from their families on Thanksgiving, Christmas, et cetera. Um, with the promise that they're going to get overtime for that. They're not receiving that. Um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, the, we fucking Obama floated uh, uh, Tesla through the financial crisis with mm-hmm. the cool third of a billion dollar uh, low interest government loan. If that's if memory serves, um, and who recruits that? Like that's basically that nice uh, slice of capital is being used to exploit people, and <laughs> it's not going into their workers' pockets. It's going into Elon. And uh, same thing with SpaceX. Oh, oh, who took out a giant ad buy in Twitter recently? SpaceX. Because yeah. that's not going to their, those engineers. It's going to try to um, prop up one of his other ventures. Yeah. yeah. Billionaires, baby. Bad folks. Um, we'll hear more about them this Sunday in our patron exclusive bonus episode. Uh, you can sign up and support the show at patreon.com slash left reckoning. And y'all, it's holidays. Just a little quick plug. You know, we still oh, got yeah. plenty of merch out there. You can get uh, our Left Reckoning trucker cap, LR on the road shirt, and our big text tank all over there at leftreckoning.com slash store. It's been nice uh, getting all the pictures of folks wearing those around town stuff. So hopefully we can get some more out there soon. Um, but yeah, we got a lot of fun. 
Fun stuff. Robbie H. Uh, I work in an aluminum foundry. My money always on time, but safety is third around this motherfucker. Well, be safe. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we got a fun show. We're going to be talking with Ryan Zickraff um, in just a little bit about um, a really cool labor, Southern labor story that I think uh, was, you know, hidden for a very long time. Uh, we're going to be talking about, unfortunately, some of the Sorry. United States' uh, role in uh, continuing its war on Native people. Um, but we're going to jump over right now to talk about student debt and what you can do to fight back against this right wing move uh, to block Biden in the courts. Uh, spoiler alert, Biden doesn't have to wait around for them. Yep, go do it. Uh, Patreon.com just left reckoning to uh, uh, hit us in the post game. All right, welcome back, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, is David Griscom. David, hello. Hey, man. Uh, and joining us this evening is Nick Marcel. is a higher education organizer with the Debt Collective. Nick, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you so much, Matt and David. And just glad to be here. <laughs> Um, well, we appreciate the, all the work you guys have been doing uh, with the student loan stuff. Um, and before we get to the, uh, the, the courts of it all, uh, can you just set the scene for uh, folks? Like, what was this? Just set the scene for like the push of student loan um, forgiveness and, uh, and up to the point where Biden actually acted on it. Yeah. So, um, you know, to also just mention uh, the Debt Collective is a national debtors union and, you know, really trying to bring folks together around the issue of student debt as well as other kinds of debt. Right. Um, and for a long time, the Debt Collective has been within the higher education or student loan space um, and really on the forefront and fighting for <laughs> student loan debt cancellation. Um, and, you know, explicitly, I'm trying to remember the exact date or whatnot, but however long ago, you know, the Debt Collective and others had forced the Biden administration to release a document sort of outlining. However, it was all, you know, put put behind a nice black wall of ink um, in his authority, which Biden does have to cancel all federally held student loan debt, which is like mm -hmm. 92% of all the student loan debt that's out there of like the 1.7, 1.8 trillion, right? And, you know, Time and time again over the, you know, pandemic and, you know, with the Biden administration, you know, more recently, you know, groups such as the Debt Collective and others had been pushing and pushing for the extension of the payment pause, um, but also, you know, just for this cancellation, right? You know, President Biden, you know, both, uh, you know, during 2020 and then also a lot of folks uh, just in the midterms ran on student loan debt cancellation. And that was definitely what helped in getting a lot of, you know, I'd say the historic wins and just, you know, uh, youth voter turnout out uh, to vote on such an issue, as well as so many other issues. Um, but it, it was definitely interesting in, you know, seeing again and again, the Biden administration uh, ending up uh, being pushed by us and so many other debtors. Uh, to extend that payment pause. I, I remember time and time again when it was, this is going to be the last extension of the payment pause. Uh, we had our action back in April and where it was just like, you know, not long after that action or right around that time was when they ended up extending it again to what they were saying was now the final extension of the payment pause. And, you know, now with a lot of the things that have been, you know, happening um, in the courts, um, 
that uh, you know we've sort of seen, there's been talk of another extension. So mm-hmm. as I'll say, you know, both with the power of cancellation, which President Biden and Education Secretary Cardona have that authority and have that power to do that. They have that similar power to, you know, extend the payment pause, which seems like they might even do again. Yeah. And do you have any uh, uh, thoughts on the the authority Biden used to pass this uh, student loan forgiveness? You know, there's um, criticism that he should have used um, the uh, education focus rather than the COVID focused um, authority. Uh, and for my part, like I, I am willing to believe that they would do it under uh, like the COVID thing to kind of make it seem like a one-off thing. I, I, I find it hard to believe that they did it for that reason uh, in in uh, in hopes that it would eventually fail after the election. Uh, but, I, but before I editorialize, do you have any thoughts on the authority that Biden used? Well, you know, regardless of whatever authority that it is that he uses, he shouldn't have in the first place, you know, done this through an application. He shouldn't have done it through Mm -hmm. means testing. It should have been something that was automatic from the get go day one. And, you know, regardless, we're going to have these, you know, right wing Trump appointed judges like in Texas and, you know, billionaires who are sort of backing these cases, you know, trying to stop this. However, if Biden just would have used that authority unilaterally and just right off the bat to just wipe it all down to zero, we wouldn't even be having that sort of discussion because it doesn't need to be the case. And he can still do so, you know, under, you know, the Higher Education Act of 1965. Um, But, you know, he has that authority. And, And as I'll say, like, fuck the courts. I, like, I, like, how, like, how many times have we seen, you know, just recently with Roe or, you know, with so many other issues and where instead of really trying to act on these issues, you know, so many have just sort of been like, nope, hands up, we're, we're going to leave it through this court process. No, you, you have the authority to cancel all federally held student loan debt, Biden, and you need to just do it now. And like, you know, when you look at it, like, there's no doubt about it, I think. Most people, particular people with student loans, understand that the student debt crisis is a crisis. And while I'm happy for there being like some responses, like, you know, all of these different repayment plans um, have really been such a mess, you know, from things like, you know, forgiving people for public service. I mean, that was one of those things that when people ended up actually getting it, it came as a big surprise because most people's experiences um, with that system has been like an absolute disaster. There's nothing more stressful than at the end of the year. Having to go on the Department of Education website and picking between 15, 17 plans for what's one makes the most sense for you when what we need is, is, is cancellation. And yeah, I think that the application process here, the means testing of the forgiveness um, was, was, a real, was a real nightmare. I will say like I was heartened in how simple the process was. But when you see the legal challenges and you know, all of this other stuff going into it, you can see why that wasn't the best way to go about it. Yeah. And, you know, we had uh, Mark Joseph Stern on Majority Report um, uh, this uh, earlier this afternoon. He did mention like one of the things they might do with that information is to in, go through and individually um, reach back out to people and in a way that we can get around the courts. But again, like you said, Nick, like the, the point, the lesson of this needs to be like, you need to actually go for it and stop this, all this stuff. And I, I just want to correct you on one thing before you let you come back in. You mentioned uh, the redacted uh, um, department of education uh, memo, and you said it was blacked out. Um, it was actually pinked out. 
and this or was in this out. memo. Okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, and uh, and it's just like this ridiculous song and dance of like, do we? Yeah. We need the secret information that only sort of the priests of bureaucracy can decode, <laughs> and it's it's never been that complex. No, it, it, it never has. And thank you for that very important correction. <laughs> um, I like I, I definitely I, I I said, you know, of course, I said blacked out and like it was a different <laughs> color. And that's exactly what all the bureaucracy wants you to figure out. What was it? What was it? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter, as you're saying, Matt. And like, you know, like th- that is the point, too. Right. Like, why are we caring? And, you know, David, you mentioned like the student like debt crisis is a crisis. Like, it, it's not these individual circumstances of people. Like, you know, the amount of folks that I have talked to of, like, you know, members and, like, debt strikers, uh, like, within the debt collective, like, you know, and just hearing their stories, like, these are not their own individual faults, right? And and that's one of the big points of with the debt collective of it is not your individual shame of, uh, of this debt that you hold, right? One of the slogans that we say is you are not alone. You're neither the loan that you took out to, you know, go to get a college degree or maybe not even get a college degree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're also not alone because there are so many other people out there who have this debt. And that it's holding them back. Like, you know, I've talked to people who said of, you know, how it's impacted their families of how it's, you know, prevented them from actually getting married or like Mm -hmm. whatever issues that those are. And really the point is, you know, creditors and like, you know, the, the government right now is trying to say like, well, no, we need to deal with this on an individual basis. No, these, this is a crisis that needs to actually be solved and we need to cancel student loan debt. Yeah, and I just want like the characterization of like the folks who are benefiting from this are, is so aggravating too. Because I just remember this conversation I had with this guy, me and my buddy uh, who was in town. We went and got drinks in Manhattan um, at this at this dive bar. This other guy in there heard we were us talking about politics, and that's what he asked about. And he's this guy who grocery store worker, didn't finish college, but has a mountain of debt. And he basically like, okay, I'm going to have a drink before I get back on the subway, like fucking 45 minutes out of manhattan and he that's what he wanted to know like is biden actually going to um act on this shit that is crippling people's like opportunity yeah, no and just like on the we're on the same mind matt like i want to ask you nick i know we got like some more technical stuff to get to in a second yeah. you know one thing about the that the republicans do a lot um and i even see some people on the left make this argument sometimes too which is very frustrating is that like this is like a desire of like the upper middle class right like a bailout to those well off in society um there was a i, I think it was in texas but I'm, i i could be confused about that there was a republican like attack ad um about like um student debt cancellation they had like you know very stereotypical like blue collar jobs you know people saying like you're welcome i paid for your college and it was funny when they were listing off all the expenses that they have in their life and they know they omitted one very very clear one which is what most working class families do is try to save up a little bit of money so that maybe their kid could go off to college. But, you know, you mentioned um, a second ago, like the people who so many people get these loans and then they don't even finish their degree um, and then they hold them. I was just wondering if you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely is a huge number of people in which that is. I I don't want to toss the wrong statistic Mm -hmm. out there because I forget off the top of my head of like what it is. I want to say and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say it's like a third of folks I like who, you know, do have this debt, like might not, you know, actually have a degree. 
um, out of it, uh, please feel free to fact check me because I forget off the top of my head. But I, um, you know, it, it just is the case for so many because of the fact that, like, we have this, you know, just commercialized and uh, this, you know, the, the, the system of higher education where it's financialized. That's the word that I'm looking for. And where, you know, we are, you know, forcing folks into debt into, you know, paying, you know, for even just like public higher education, mm-hmm. right? You know, and and it really just is such a such a huge issue and where of what you were just raising, David, of how, you know, there are those sort of like attack ads of, oh, look at the, you know, the blue collar worker who is, you know, like, they're not going to be for this, right? Well, actually, if you looked, um, I, I know um, Astra Taylor, who's uh a co-founder and like co-director of the Net Collective has also talked about this too on another podcast um, in where I think CNN did like uh, an interview or just like went around um, like somewhere at some, uh, I, I'm trying to remember where in Pennsylvania, um, but, you know, to basically some like, you know, big, like sort of like market and uh, was like, hey, like, you know, what do you guys think? And, you know, this is generally like, you know, a more rural part of Pennsylvania of where they were at. And, you know, they really couldn't find anyone who was against this, right? Because it, it might not even be that they themselves, but maybe a sibling of theirs has student mm-hmm. loan debt or maybe their kids, right? And, you know, one of the things is too is do, do those folks not want their kids if they're having kids to like have this debt, right? You know, it, debt is never just an individual thing. Like as I was saying before, it, it's so interconnected into families and it's so interconnected connected into society writ large, you know, whether it's student loan debt, medical debt, carceral debt, school lunch debt, even it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the class dynamics of it, I mean, I, I just remember myself uh, be as a 17 year old, neither of my parents went to college. So we're looking at like the different financing options and me trying to, and it's, it was naive, man. Like it's worked mm-hmm. out for me, but it was, you do this cause this is a setup for your future. And, mm-hmm. and for a lot of folks, like, nah, it's the, this is not the world that, I mean, and mine was right before 2007. Uh, right. And, and, and just the, I just think of like, it's wild. We put teenagers into that position. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't always used to be that way. I think, uh, yeah. you know, some folks know some of that history, some don't definitely look, look at some of the history of, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan or, you know, others in California, you know, basically saying that, um, no, we don't want uh, some of the lower classes or mm-hmm. uh, some, you know, non-white people um, getting getting this education and, you know, understanding uh, certain things. Um, it's it's, yeah. it's quite interesting. And, you know, there's some great articles I could definitely recommend around that. Um, but, yeah. yeah, John Schwartz has the uh, the article on The Intercept where he uh, came, found the memo where they <laughs> the, the Reagan advisor literally worried about a quote educated proletariat <laughs> so it's like, yeah. Yeah, putting that into terms that we can understand <laughs> pretty much very explicitly like and you know and, and that's the thing too these conversations definitely happen with like those memos or you know behind closed doors of those folks because that's they, that's what they fear and you know that they're they're right to fear that in in their own ways right and we should be fighting every step of the way towards that because that's what we need so, I mean, uh, so take us to the, the present moment. I mean, could you break down these legal challenges that we're seeing to the debt cancellation program? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, as I'll mention, there's been a slew of like, you know, right wing and like billionaire sort of like funded um, legal challenges, which really those folks have been just kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Um, Whether we saw some folks, um, I believe it was in Wisconsin, um, who were, you know, kind of scared that it seemed like uh, it was going to be unfair uh, because, you know, white people were going to get less of a benefit. You know, they're, they're scared that we're overthrowing racial capitalism, everybody. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, or we had, um, you know, another, I believe it was like an attorney general who uh, was in Arizona, if I remember correctly, who was just saying like, you know, well, how are we going to keep people in like shitty jobs? Like, and, and, you know, and it's just kind of just ridiculous of like, well, doesn't that showcase of like what this, you know, student loan debt and, you know, other forms of debt are really sort of upholding and doing similar as the quote that you brought up of like the, you know, educated proletariat, like that, that is what these people are fearing, you know, and, you know, we also had, um, you know, one uh, of uh, around Mohila, which is this weird sort of like public private sort of thing, like, you know, like a loan servicer in Missouri, which, you know, supposedly helps the state of Missouri in funding higher education. Um, and, and that's one of the ones that's, you know, more in the spotlight as of late, or even this one uh, through the, uh, like, right wing and uh, billionaire funded uh, job creators network. Um, actually, one of the co-founders of that is uh, the, uh, like, co-founder of Home Depot. Um, and, you know, it's, it, Lingo, it's quite interesting. Right? Uh, what is that? Ken Lingo? Oh, no, uh, the other guy, Bernie Marcus, I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. and yeah, but you know, w- with this one, it's quite interesting. And I know, uh, Ken Klippenstein does a good job, um, writing an article around, uh, <laughs> some of the, uh, the plaintiffs, um, right. So it, it focuses around, uh, Myra Brown and Alexander Taylor, um, who both are sort of claiming to be harmed by this cancellation. Uh, one of whom Myra actually got like 40, $8,000 in uh, PPP money canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, c- explain to me, um, you know, why it's unfair, I guess, to get student loan debt canceled would be, um, you know, and then uh, you also have uh, Alexander uh, Taylor, who is currently a graduate student um, at, uh, at Catholic University of Dallas and is kind of upset that he's only getting 10,000 canceled compared to the $20,000 uh, for a uh, for a Pell Grant student. Right. And, you know, in, instead of these folks, you know, because uh, Myra, I didn't mention uh, has her loans, as many other people do, as uh, Fell loans. Um, and those are not, uh, like qualifying under the Biden, uh, you know, cancellation, right. But instead of either of them trying to fight to, uh, you know, get all of this debt canceled, um, it's them saying like, we can fix the harm by giving no one debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had this, you know, right wing Trump appointed judge in uh, the Northern district of uh, Texas and like Fort Worth, who's really just like ignoring the law. Uh, there's a you know great opinion on like CNN and also in some other, I think like legal journal that really talks in, like in depth more on how uh, really of what this judge is saying, kind of like if you follow it through, then it sort of like negates what he's already said. And, you know, it, like, but, but it's just kind of utter bullshit as we were saying earlier of both with that and then this thing revolving Mohila and like six Republican-led states of how now the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has issued like an injunction. But again, 
we didn't need to be here and we still don't need to be here because Biden can still just with the flick of a pen, just cancel this debt. He doesn't need to do this, you know, program. We don't need to have the application. We don't need to have the means testing with it. You can just compromise and settle everything down to zero. Mm-hmm. And he should do that. Secretary Cardona should do that like right now. Um, but of course, it, it's more of a conversation, as we've seen, of kicking the can down the road. And that's not right. what debtors want. That's not what you know the debt collective want. That, that, that's not what people are really trying to get. They're not trying to see, oh, how much longer is it until I get my cancellation? It's no, I, I need this now. And it's not forgiveness. It's cancellation because th- these people have nothing to be sorry about. So, I mean, we can sort of, I mean, unless you think there's more to say on the administration front, like I feel like their telegraphed intent is to, like you say, kick the can down the road and pause, uh, maybe do another pause um, and and extend it for however long. Um, What can an activist do? Like, let's say instead of uh, you're you're upset about the the getting 10 instead of 20 and you, instead of doing a right wing lawsuit, you want to get involved. uh, What does a debt collective have for folks? Yeah, so definitely, um, you know, check us out at uh, debtcollective.org. Um, you can officially join our debtors union um, for the uh, le- less than uh, Elon Musk price of a verified Twitter that no longer exists. Um, or, or there's actually like a you, you don't have to you know pay, but um, but you can join us. Um, pretty awesome space and place, um, you know. But as well, you know, consider joining our debt strike. Right, we have like thousands of folks who have already said that they are going on debt strike uh, <laughs> until this gets canceled because that that's what it should be and you know that that's what folks are clamoring for they're not they're, they're not here to like you know just let it go right it, it, it's mm-hmm. not we're going to let this play out no biden you need to use this authority and if you're not going to use it we are going on debt strike um, so definitely, you know, check that out. I can toss that link uh, for you guys, of yeah. course, to share. Um, and then also, you know, sign. We have a petition that we're just sending off to the Biden administration or even to, you know, other elected officials and such, which, you know, explicitly showcases um, that executive order, which we wrote for him to just flick the pen. That's all that Joe needs to do. We can say, fuck the courts, flick the pen. You can just say, come on, Joe, like, let's cut it out, cut the malarkey and just flick that pen. I like, yeah. you know, it, it can be handed to him and that he can definitely do. Um, and lastly, I'll just mention, as I said before, if you are not alone. Right. And one of the big things that we like to do with that collective is have debtors assemblies. So definitely I encourage folks to consider talking with other folks that, you know, about this issue and about just student loan debt, about other kinds of debt, right? Because it really is when bringing folks together, that is its own sort of radical, like, ask and radical way to just, you know, take action because, you know, society so much wants to say it's your own individual fault. It's your shame for these things. But in reality, when we come together, we have power. Can you talk a little bit more about the other forms of debt? Because that's always been something that's interested me is to try to synergize that. Because we do also the occupational debt, right? Like there's all sorts of, like, I mean, PetSmart was literally had some sort of thing called like trap loans where yeah. they, that they literally called them that to like get associates like indebted to work for them. Yeah, I, I definitely think Admiral Akbar was like yelling and screaming <laughs> uh, when, when he heard that. Um, yeah, no, there are like, plenty of different kinds of debt in which, you know, we're 
doing things on. Um, of course, I am not like the best direct person to ask with everything. Um, I'll highlight um, one thing that I uh, was in part on, and I've actually talked on um, another podcast um, sort of about, which is uh, school lunch debt. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely another sort of like crisis and right. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, Congress had, uh, I, I believe it was uh, back right around the time of the you know pandemic or a little bit after um had basically uh you know made sure that all school meals were free um however uh then of course they sort of let that go um i am trying to remember the exact deadline maybe it was may or june uh just like this past may or june um and basically you know just letting it go back to sort of like a uh, as we were sort of talking about before bureaucratize means tested sort of tiered system of you know whether or not students at you know at public schools like are, are getting like a, a school meal or whether that they'll be given um you know told to go to the back of the line or maybe they'll have uh you know either it could be a transcript or something withholded or it could be uh the fact that they're not allowed to go to like a certain club or something because they have mm -hmm. whatever outstanding debt right and it, it, it's just absurd i mean there was a school district in pa a number of years ago and where uh they, they basically said um oh we're going to be uh or like we're, we're going to be tossing or calling like you know we called parents or whatnot to threaten about uh, tossing your kids to child protective services because of the like unpaid school meal debt. Right. And, you know, it, it is these things that just happen and don't need to be the case. Um, so I, I'm always happy to talk further, um, you know, sort of about that issue because we got uh, not that long ago, uh, like $20,000 canceled in a particular school district, um, mm -hmm. just a little bit north of Philly. Um, and, you know, still trying to sort of continue that fight. Um, onward there. But, you know, again, all of this debt is interconnected because it, it's not just about student loan debt. It's not just about school lunch debt. It's not just about medical debt, carceral debt, whatever, whatever it is, because it, it showcases of how in society, instead of actually having sort of society writ large fund these things, we say, no, you need to take out a credit card. No, you need to sign here on the dotted line to go to a school. You know, yeah. heck, it, it, it's just it's just ridiculous. And like, we don't need to have that. And, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, very much what the fight is really for. It's a, it's coercion with numbers, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Nick Marcel, thanks so much for joining us uh, and for all the work that you guys do at the Deck Collective. Yeah, totally. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Man, Nick was really awesome. Uh, it's it's nice to get somebody who's been out there, you know, fighting for these things. And it's just so damn frustrating when you realize how popular this policy is and how simple the legal mechanism could be. And then to be sitting in a moment right now where, uh, you know, where basically the, a lot of people are acting as if it's done. You see when all the circuit breakers, uh, when the circuit breakers come out and it's not for forgiving PPP loans, mm -hmm. uh, it's for, you know, like, like, uh, you know, what that, uh, AG said, uh, oh, we lost a cudgel or a whip that we use to cajole, uh, you know, folks at the lower end of the, uh, you know, worker scale. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we're at. Well, we have another legal um, story to, to cover tonight, and it's a it's a really worrying one as well. Um, Native sovereignty has been 
something that the right wing has been fixated on uh, for a good while, but it seems like they're getting ready um, to act. And before we get into this really worrying case uh, that we're seeing that is very much threatening native sovereignty, I just wanted to play this short clip here of uh, uh, Paul uh, Gosar, who's a congressman, um, talking about what he would like Carrie Lake to do uh, to one of the native tribes in Arizona if she were to win governor, thankfully. She lost bigly. Um, but this is the kind of language and the way that they're thinking about these issues. And I think it's very important for us to sort of have our head on a swivel about it. Mm-hmm. What if, Jesus. just what if, somebody like Carrie Lake wins the, the, the governorship, which she should, and she pr- follows through on her promise, like Donald Trump did, and say, okay, I'm uh, calling a state of emergency across the state of Arizona. I'm militiaizing the National Guard. I am putting them on the border, and let's do this. Let's outline the Tohoto Odom Nation. And for those of your listeners who don't understand, we have a nation, a reservation, Indian reservation, that straddles Mexico and, and Arizona. They do not allow our men and women on the border patrol to go on the border, and a lot of drugs and human smuggling goes through that reservation. So we outline them all with all our National Guard, and we say no impasses. Well, that tells the Tohoto Odom. You're either America and Arizona first, or you're Mexico first, and Mexico doesn't recognize you. Oh, that's a good one. And then, then we say, wait a minute. You failed at your jurisdiction and your guarantee clause of the invasion clause. So we're taking it back order. What does the state have that you and I don't? It has direct redress to the Supreme Court. Mm. You're at that point now where you have to start that fight. Take the fight to the Supreme Court. It's one of the last vestiges you have. Why do you think the left is so uh, opposed by it and wanted to stack the deck? Because they know the same thing. Now, now you, you know... And then that Bubba goes on, basically beats his chest and hopes that Carrie Lake has the balls to do it. But I mean, what he's talking about there is is quite serious, right? We're talking about invalidating um, tribal sovereignty, right? Which is a a, a principle, something that is negotiated nation to nation. Um, And, uh, you know, you're seeing it in in examples like that. You're seeing worrying signs in Oklahoma as well. And the Supreme Court has already um, played a role in rolling back a lot of those kind of uh, decisions that had cemented the concept of the U.S. Constitution, which is... um, you know, is, is, is nation to nation sovereignty when it comes to um, Native American tribes inside the United States. And I don't know if you had anything to mention on the Oklahoma thing before we get into the Supreme Court case. Well, what's amazing to me is how much of a concerted effort this is becoming. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not the first time this has come on the radar. I watched a Dave Rubin episode uh, um, from a few months ago. This was, uh, let's see, when was this? Um, Three months ago. Yeah. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, and uh, Dave is talking to Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, uh, who, you know, he'll tell you is a member of Cherokee Nation himself. So, you know, better wise up and listen to him. Uh, here's how uh, they discuss this issue. I don't want on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, the, the McGirt decision came out in July of 2020. And basically what it said, it was the U.S. Supreme Court decision called McGirt. So I'll encourage everybody to look it up. But basically it said 
that we still had reservations in Oklahoma. So uh, about half of our state was all of a sudden turned back into an Indian reservation. Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a million people, was now considered an Indian reservation. And here's the deal. I'm not against the Indians. I'm actually a member of the Cherokee. We're proud of <laughs> right. our heritage. You literally, you yourself. Literally. I can show you my card. I, I, my heritage, I have Indian blood. So I have a membership to the Indian, uh, to the Cherokee Nation. So uh, it's not an anti-Indian thing. But this is a pro-Oklahoma thing. This is a common sense thing. So so that's how they're framing it. This is not an Indian thing. This is a pro-state pro thing mm-hmm. and, a, uh, and a common sense thing. But I mean, I think as you're going to get into, like, it's not a pro-Oklahoma thing because those are different nations, technically, yep. like in terms of how we deal with them law, in, in terms of law, like this, they're not just Oklahomans. It's not as simple as that. And um, I think in the in in this um, case I'm about to talk about, it actually does become um, about something different than states' rights. It becomes about race, but yeah. And, and let me just uh, give a little coda to that um, and how uh, the tribes responded to that. Uh, how a historic endorsement from Oklahoma's five largest tribes could affect the governor's race. Um, they all endorsed uh, for the first time uh, the uh, challenger to the incumbent governor yeah. and got together. So not happy there. Um, but yeah, let's 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 talk about this case um, that we're seeing argued in the Supreme Court, Halon versus Bracky. Now, we've talked about it on this program, and people should spend some time educating themselves if you're not familiar with it. Um, but there's a very very dark history in the United States and uh, in Canada of not just forcibly removing people off of their lands, murdering them, um, killing off their food sources, but in you know <laughs> decades since actually trying to eradicate peoples and cultures um, from the face of, of this planet. And there's a dark history in the U.S. and Canada, first of boarding schools, uh, where Native children were pulled away from their families, pulled away from their communities, and were taught Christianity, taught English, were not allowed to speak their language, um, something that has had a massive detrimental effect on you know remembering of history and of culture amongst Native peoples. Entire generations of, of, of people experienced this horror. And as its brutality um, continued to be exposed, and we're still learning more now, as people know, from these mass graves that have been found on the sites of these boarding schools, um, there was outcry to, to change that system. And they still wanted to eradicate Native culture and Native peoples, um, but they didn't want to have such a heavy hand. So there was this move um, towards white adoption of Native children. And you know, it was an extremely brutal system as well. People were pulled away from their communities, from their language, from their culture, from their people. Um, and they are taught to act, you know, white, to act differently. Um, and Back at that time, I'll just say, like, in terms of the North Dakota uh, boarding schools, um, it, for the boys, it was agriculture. And for the girls, it was things like how to work the newfangled laundry machines, literally. Mm-hmm. And there's been tremendous fights over this, over boarding schools and over adoption. You know, when we talk about movements like the American Indian Movement, a significant amount of those people were people who went through the boarding school system, were people who had to relearn their language as adults because um, our society, the United States, had tried to prevent them from being able to interact uh, with, with their culture and their history. And you see these different phases in the adoption movement. Um between 1958 and 1967, there were moves that were considered to be progressive. 
uh, where you were trying to match native children with white families, but white families who might have like a darker skin tone or something like that so that they could seem more matching and there'd be less questions about uh, the lineage of, of your children. And we're not just talking about a few fringe cases here when we're talking about adoption. Um, between 1969 and 1974, around 25 to 35% of all uh, Indian children were separated from their families and put into foster homes, right? I mean, this is people just showing up and, and taking uh, children and throwing them into our foster care system, which is, you know, horrific. Um, it's, it's horrific to do that to any child, but it's especially horrific when you remember that this is part of a project to eradicate a people and a culture and a language and a heritage, so in 1978, after loss of mass movements demanding that this changed, uh, there was what was put in place called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which created a system for children who are in the foster care system uh, when it comes to adoption to consider, along with all of the other considerations that go into adoption, um, have a preference for a native child to either have priority first given with immediate family, um, then extended family. And then member, uh, other members of that child's tribe. And then lastly, other native tribe. And this new um, case that we're seeing argued before the Supreme Court, um, Halland uh, versus uh, Brackeen, is challenging uh, this preference in adoption, arguing that it racially discriminates against, drumroll, white people. And first of all, this is wrongheaded on on so many levels, on just like the basic, um, you know, reading of the argument about white people being discriminated against is just nonsensical. But it's also very important to get this right, because when we're talking in law in the United States about these things, we are not talking about different ethnic groups. We are talking about sovereign nations and the United States. So this is not a question about ethnicity. Uh, this is a question about citizenship. Um, and I think it's really important to, to, to understand that line because a lot of stuff hinges on that understanding. Um, it's critical to note that it's not um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is being challenged now, does not apply along ethnic lines. Um, it replies only to Indian children, which is a legal definition um, that refers to children who are members themselves of a tribe or who have a parent who is a member of a tribe and is eligible for membership, right? So these are citizenship requirements from sovereign tribes in the United States. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about this kind of preferential um, understanding about where children should be sent um, when they're in the foster care system. Again, not ethnic, despite what the argument is um, from, um, from these white families. And there's, there's more to get to, and we'll be covering this as, it, as it's ongoing, um, but it's really important to note that this is, case was brought on by families that had attempted to adopt uh, Native American children, right? Um, and they're basically arguing that th during that process, they were racially discriminated against. Erroneous on its face. But also remember that two-thirds of the people who brought this case up, Matt, I don't know if you know this, two thirds of them were successful in their adoption because there is a holistic understanding in that system 
which says we, you know, we consider all these other factors along with the benefit of the child and all of the other things that you typically would consider during an adoption proceeding, right? So it's not, this is the law. We're only going to do matching, you know, in these kind of groups. It's saying we will look to see if we could match um, Indian children with uh, members of their tribe or with um, members of their immediate family um, and give that some kind of preference, right? And, you know, this is the, <laughs> it's an amazing and and really worrying um, kind of boiling together of a lot of different um, things, right? One, the right wing's uh, not new obsession, but I think inspired obsession lately. We're trying to undermine um, tribal uh, sovereignty. And two, this kind of nonsensical uh, you know, reverse racism argument that you've been seeing cultivated on the right for the past few years. I mean, yeah, just to spell it out, the UN uh, um, uh, UN Genocide Convention includes, quote, forcibly transferring children from one group to another. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a th- something with a uh, long history um, to the point where there's a recent controversy over uh, somebody went to a Holocaust museum and found it problematic that there was a story of like a woman, a Christian woman who helped get a bunch of Jewish children adopted by Christian families. Mm-hmm. That's not something to un- uncritically celebrate, even in the circumstances. And certainly not, I mean, and I was talking with David before, Gary Clayton Anderson, a historian published by Oklahoma University Press, work of, works of serious history that you can learn from, is nonetheless um, uh, uh, won't use the term genocide because uh, he himself uh, uh, accompanied his grandmother. And he, I'll just quote here, I would ride along with her out to see a priest of Standing Rock or whatever, and we would go pick up a baby in some isolated part of the reservation. Uh, she just wanted someone along to, you know, shovel snow if she got stuck. And I would hold the baby as we would race back to Fargo to the clinic and have that baby examined. And that was just a matter of fact, actually, we're doing something good here, um, which is basically, uh, I, it's a, it's a, it's a genocide and it's, it's a, it's a con- conscious attack on on culture sort of naturalized in, in over the course through like things like oh we're just adopting uh you know needy children mm-hmm. no i mean totally and like i think like we could just focus solely on this issue of you know cultural erasure the you know ongoing genocidal pro- um, project and all of that and that'd be you know good enough on its own, but it's really critical to note that this is not just a direct attack on that program and that understanding of, of the law, right? Um, but it's an attempt to to try to pull back the powers that tribes in this country have fought so hard to have the um, treaties that they signed with the United States government as peers, nation to nation, to be respected. And this is an attempt to clop back. And the way that it, you know it could potentially go down if the right wing majority um, tries to overrule um, Congress on on its previous decision, um, it could have large sweeping effects for tribal sovereignty on things like establishing citizenship, on things like being able to govern your own territory when it comes to gaming, um, it, to things like gaming, right, like casinos, like being able to have that authority over. Um, you know, the, the lands that you are sovereign over, um, this is an attempt to claw that back. And that's really what it is at the end of the day, which is why it's so well-funded. There have been arguments um, that have been made. So they, the Supreme Court has heard, I believe, three hours of arguments. Um, it's looking like the right-wing majority, um, except for Neil Gorsuch, um, is really leaning towards this racial understanding of the question instead of the question of tribal sovereignty. 
and one we hope that um you know we're wrong we we hope that uh um you know the, the supreme court either rules in favor of the um the indian child welfare um act um but what's really worrying is that you know the signals that we're getting is not only will they try to overturn this act but also try to pull back the ability of sovereign nations inside of the United States to be sovereign nations. Um, so this is a long ongoing process. Uh, we'll be covering this, you know, as soon as we get more updates. Um, but it's something that I know a lot of our, 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 our friends out there are, are very worried about and rightfully so. And I think it's really important that us as a movement are standing there with them to say no uh, to the right wing um, when it comes to undoing the what already unfinished process of trying to, um, you know, treat sovereign Native American nations with respect and dignity. And if nothing else, the sovereignty um, that was negotiated when they signed treaties with the United States government. Yeah, over blood. Yeah. And yeah. Um, well, y'all, uh, we're going to go to chat with Ryan Zickraff. He wrote a really awesome piece in Jacobin Magazine. Uh, we've been wanting to get him on the program for a long time on a, on a labor story that I think a lot of people uh, may not have heard of. Um, about uh, miners finding um, convict laborers and freeing them and this very interesting Coal Creek uh, war. Um, we'll be talking to him. And then after that, Matt and I will be jumping over the post game. You get access to that at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Uh, as we talked about earlier, we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of these lawsuits against Elon Musk. We have some fun stuff and we'll be taking your calls and questions as always. Um, so see you all then. And uh, until then, uh, check out this conversation with Ryan. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. Really stoked um, to be talking about this today. Uh, we have Ryan Zickraff. Uh, you can read their work in Jacobin Magazine. They're a journalist. They also have an excellent substack called Third Rail um, that you should certainly be checking out. Um, but we brought Brian on because he wrote a piece and it was one of those things that immediately picked, uh, piqued my interest. Um, on Halloween night in 1891, Tennessee miners made righteous mayhem. Um, and, you know, as people know on this show, we love to tell all these labor stories, particularly um, the unheard or unknown ones. And, you know, before we get into this, this bit here, Ryan, I mean, like this story is about one of these big fights that is very contemporary today about the use of prison labor um, to basically legally enslave people and to, uh, you know, to, to use um, forced labor. And it's notable because in Alabama, Tennessee, Oregon um, and Vermont, um, there were amendments and uh, there, there were uh, ballot initiatives to remove slavery loopholes in these states. And it was successful in Tennessee. Um, so could you, uh, you know, just sort of set that, that stage for us about the historical nature, and then also if you could shed some light on some of the interesting things that happened with this new uh, Tennessee decision as well. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, when this article, um, about the Coal Creek war was first assigned to me, I didn't really know that slavery was going to be on the ballot. It was an interesting, <laughs> uh, you know, coincidence that, you know, these four states, um, put it on the ballot to, you know, the 13th amendment had this loophole that, you know, slavery was abolished except, uh, for prisoners, except for people convicted of felonies. So, um, for the longest time we've had, um, uh, people sometimes, you know, uh, 
in the in the 18 you know 80s 1890s it would have been people like maybe convicted for stealing a pig uh whereas in in contemporary times it might be for possessing a certain uh kind of marijuana and um it's just uh southern leaders have figured out a way over time to uh, adjust it so that um in tennessee in the 1890s it was sort of like you directly employed uh these convicts to work on 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 private mining but uh then, then, then they changed the game a little bit so that uh, these these prisoners worked on a state-run mine, and then later they got paid, but it was like cents per hour. So mm-hmm. the state has sort of adjusted uh, to the times, and so it is kind of unbelievable. And I think you know you saw this response on social media: the fact that uh, Fox News ran this banner and said something like, "Oh, slavery end," you know, and you you guys decided slavery. Ends and, and a lot of people are shocked, but it just uh, kind of shows you um, how, uh, especially black people and and incarceration and how convict leasing uh, is something that the state of Tennessee and other states have dealt with for uh, hundreds of years. Yeah, and um, you know, you were noting to us uh, before too that like well, one, one I just want to say on that like the the banner was pretty amazing. I I totally agree, but like. Remember that there's a lot of states where this is still on the books. So, like, you know, there was a little bit of smugness here where it's like, you know, this is a good thing and a victory. And there's a lot of states, I believe California being one of them, where like you'd want to see something like that happen there too. Um, but still, I mean, you yeah. gotta, yeah. you gotta, you gotta workshop that before you put slavery bans in Tennessee on Twitter on election night. No, in, yeah, I mean, what's Cal- us? Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, the California thing was kind of amazing because. California is seen as like this deep blue state, you know, and the fact that they decided not to, to uh, move on that because um, of the deficits. So they're like, well, you know, we can still have sort of this kind of slavery, you know, guys, we have, it's expensive. We, we have a big budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, what's fascinating about sort of like the, the surface level reaction to it. It's like, like, it's like, it's one of those old art, like laws on the books and we just forgot to get rid of it. But no, this is a very real purpose mm-hmm. that coercion of labor serves for like, and uh, lawmakers are uh, fully aware of that. Um, yeah. That's, that's crazy. But um, so let's let's take us back to the, this moment in, in Tennessee labor history, though, um, because it's it's a really interesting story. And, you know, it's fascinating to see, you know, 100 plus years later, um, you know, that there are st- a lot of these fights still ongoing. Um, but before we talk to like about like the exact moment and, and the, the fights that were happening there, you know, could you set the scene for us a little bit, like take us to Tennessee in 1891 um, and like one, what prisoners were facing, but two, what these coal and iron workers uh, were facing in the state as well? Well, so this era uh, after Reconstruction um, in America, there were labor battles uh, everywhere at this time. Um, in the past, I've written about like the great upheaval of 1877. And, you know, this was um, this was a few years after May Day happened in Chicago um, mm-hmm. in the Haymarket affair. Um, and so like. This was a moment where a lot of uh, uh, workers were beginning to unite. Like the labor movement was still uh, a fledgling enterprise, um, and so uh, 
in Tennessee, there were uh, company towns, including uh, one in Coal Creek. And they promised workers, you know, good wages, good job. And so you had a lot of immigrants come over to work in these company towns. And then what they experienced wasn't exactly what they were promised. You know, you had uh, low wages, sometimes wages that weren't even in cash. They were company script. So you could only buy mm -hmm. stuff from the company store. Uh, mining at the time was extremely uh, dangerous. Um, not only the, the chemicals um, that you inhaled constantly get a black lung, but also explosions were common at the time. Um, in fact, in Coal Creek, this was after all the Coal Creek War, um, in the early 1900s, there was a, a massive accident that uh, uh, an explosion that killed dozens of people there. So um, mm -hmm. we're talking about long hours. I mean, at this time, people were often uh, working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, uh, again, low pay. And so um, the workers in Tennessee were starting to agitate. Um, and they were starting to actually gain ground and get some concessions um, with their employers. Um, so convict leasing um, started as a way to kind of, um, well, it had a couple purposes. One was to um, disenfranchise the recently freed slaves and also to provide um, – a substitute labor force that, that mm -hmm. they didn't <laughs> spend hardly any money on. Uh, the prisoners could not unionize. They could not uh, rise up against it. So, yeah, it was sort of a sneaky way for corporations to uh, break unions. And um, I'm just going to pop this up here uh, right quick, folks, because you have a couple of photos that you sent us. I appreciate that so much. I mean, this is a photo uh, um, of, I mean, uh, unless you, you had any uh, biographical info you want to share here. I mean, this is a photo of the mining process. Um, you can see, you know, it's not the most like technologically advanced, which means that people are putting themselves at risk. Um, and here's a photo as well of some of these, um, you know, con convict laborers who are being leased out um, as well, right? Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think that one one thing that's really notable in, in in your piece here too is that you know there like there are two aspects to utilizing this form of labor. It's like one, it's cheap, but two to try to quell like the worker consciousness, the working class power that is building up in the area, and it could be a very effective thing because you know you basically have like state sponsored you know, a state sponsored scab program, um, you know, of people who are highly abused by the system to come in anytime, you know, laborers say, you know, we're not going to work for these wages. We're not going to work under these conditions. Yeah. And so what they did, uh, what these, um, what the state did was again, arrest a lot of, especially black men for just either small charges or sometimes they would, you know, make something up mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they were charged with these felonies and had to work for years and the conditions were even worse than for you know these uh immigrant european miners i mean mm -hmm. you had child labor you had um no hospitals you no know, barely any kind of uh, uh health care whatsoever so it was it was rough it was um it was a hard way to work yeah, and um, 
you know, obviously people understood the conditions, right? Uh, like the working people understood what this was, that this was bad. Um, you built some really interesting solidarity at a time uh, when you might not expect that to be the case in the 1890s in, in the South. Um, but before, like, before we get into like the actual, you know, Coal Creek War itself, I mean, uh, one thing that you note in, in the piece is that there were uh, political attempts um, to end this program. And I was just wondering if you could frame for the audience, like how well those went. Well, so I should maybe um, give a little more background as far as yeah. like the Cold Creek War, because you hear war and you think, you know, it's maybe just this period of battles where uh, what we're really talking about is like a year and a half of uh, mostly like labor struggles and um some sort of like waiting because like in the winter they didn't really do anything. And so... Mm-hmm nothing really much happened in the winter, but what you had is, uh, so in 1891, um, these, uh, iron and and mining companies, again, that had just, uh, got, gave some concessions to these miners. Um, they all of a sudden go under repairs. And then when they come back, they have convict leasing. And then, so that's when, uh, some of these, miners start to uh organize and they start to figure out uh what to do and it wasn't until a few months later once they started creating havoc and setting some of these convict uh uh laborers free that's when they ended up getting a meeting with the governor i mean they really had they had to stir some shit to get the co- mm-hmm. the governor to come down and and have some talks so um they they talked to this Governor John Buchanan, who uh, runs as sort of a populist, but, you know, at the same time, uh, when he was a state legislature, he actually uh, voted for uh, convict labor. So he had this like, John Buchanan is an interesting dude, because he's a little bit like Pontius Pilate, you know, <laughs> I feel like he, uh, you know, maybe had some moral convictions and some political convictions. But he, um capital was so uh, massive that it, you know, it just seemed like that he had to dance uh, for capital. But so he had a meeting with these miners and he said, Hey, you guys chill for two months, 60 days, and I'll see what I can do uh, with the state legislature. And I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. So that was, um, that was a good start, but uh 60 days later, it came back and um, it was the opposite of what the miners wanted. Uh, the state legislature actually made it a felony to interfere with convict leasing. Mm. So um, that, didn't, uh, that didn't quite go over. Yeah, and just like, I mean, you might be able to describe this better than me, Ryan, but like, I think sometimes people who don't know like Southern history, well, like, don't understand how much of a bonanza there was in the South post-Civil War, particularly like in coal, in iron and in railroad. I mean, people made huge fortunes. So you started to see it's not that, you know, the old ruling class was completely liquidated, but there was this kind of rising um, industrial, um, you know, ruling class in states like Tennessee in particular, where there was a lot of money to be made. And that was wielding a lot of power um, in the in the state. Um, but yeah, and then you see this like large immigrant group of, 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 of people who are moving there to work these, these mines. Um, and, and so, 
you know, I, I would also say that these uh, southern states were also, you know, really poor yeah. uh, right after the Civil War. And so they were like, come on in. They tried to get all of this, these entrepreneurs, all of these businesses in. And they're like, you know, have whatever you want. We just we just need more more money in the coffers. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 pretty um, it's it's a pretty fascinating point in in American uh, like capitalism if you compare it for example what was happening in, in the Northeast just because in a lot of places it wasn't as developed so it was like industrializing really quickly and those effects were right. seen like in like a generation um, people were, were really experiencing that the, the effect of, of the system um, that's effectively a new market being opened right like yeah. whereas you just had like plantation owners saying well that's my mountain over there we'll we'll get to it when we get to it you have all of a sudden like the entire like like finance and northern industry being like let's get some of that yeah, yeah so, and that's um, and that's honestly a lot of the history of of the west you know we yeah, talk yeah. about like totally uh, of the wild west and all that but a lot of that was uh capitalist expansion mm. yep so, so we have this, um, you know, the, this, you know, people are pushing back. They're seeing the problems uh, with this, this brutal system here. Um, one, like, because you mentioned a little, a little bit, but I'd be curious to know, like, what kinds of organizations, like these miners, were forming if they were like what we would consider to be unions, um, or if they were more sort of, um, you know, community-based things. And then, how do they end up like taking this fight into their own hands and opening up like the next chapter in the in, in the wars there? Well, um, so when I was uh, investigating this story, like I said, I went up to which is now called actually Rocky Top, uh, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and it's about a half an hour um, northwest of Knoxville, and. Um, Shit, I lost my thread. <laughs> Wait, what did you? I'm sorry, I like totally. No, no worries. Um, I was just, I was sort of asking, like, you know, what kind of like unions and organizations were these workers forming, and then how did they end up taking this 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 fight more directly? So yeah, it was mostly informal. I mean, because there was so much class consciousness and there was so much class struggle going on at this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chances are a lot of the workers that were going to be in Tennessee uh, had wind of some of the other things that were going on all over the country. Like I said, you know, this big thing in Chicago uh, had happened five years previous and, 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 you know, there were countless uh, number of, of miners and iron workers and um, other laborers that were engaged in struggles. But, in this case, a lot of them were a, cl- uh, a tight knit community. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them were Welsh. And in fact, uh, what I was going to say was that um, uh, Barry, who I met um, in Coal Creek, uh, was cosplaying as a Welsh miner. And he was telling me the story. He'd done all of this work to like um, in- embody. Uh, mm-hmm. This one uh, Welsh miner who uh, ended up a lot of his um, archives went ended up going to Harvard. Um, so we know more about this one particular miner that he was sort mm-hmm. of role playing as. But um, from what I understand, they were just a very tight knit community. And so they had a sort of like informal, you know, they had uh you know, like community meetings and they were all, I mean, we're not talking about a lot of people. We're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, a couple hundred people. And so they just sort of organized independently. 
And, but the thing is, is I think what's interesting too, is they're very measured, you know, they weren't, um, they didn't go out in the streets and start firebombing things uh, right away. This was again, months, this whole thing was like, you know, a year and a half and they were very reasonable. So at first they tried to talk it out. And once the governor was like, you know, we actually uh, made it illegal for you guys to do anything about this. That's when they decided to sort of do uh, extrajudicial justice. Um, And that's when they started going to some of these stockades where the convicts were being held. And, you know, like in the middle of the night, and they would uh, set the facilities on fire and then um, gave the convicts, uh, they set them free, gave them some civilian clothes and said, hey, do you know you're free do whatever you want great <laughs> i mean it's it's a really incredible like active active resistance there both like on the moral level of like freeing prisoners who are being held in labor and then two like you know breaking some of the power of the these coal companies and iron companies of, of over people and their and, uh, and i love uh you know i i began this story it was supposed to be sort of an anniversary piece so i started on halloween night and mm-hmm. i just love the it's sort of evocative to have these um, these miners that are wearing masks, so you know they can't be identified, and then coming with with torches to this uh, mining company's stockades, uh, burning everything, setting the prisoners free. Like it's it's you know I I, I, t- I kind of talk about this in my piece, but it sort it sort of seems like an elaborate Halloween prank, but it was very <laughs> serious. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people have really an appreciation like mining company stockades. Like imagine if Amazon warehouses had stockades. Like what an absurd mm-hmm. you know concept that is. Like just yeah. for folks, stockades are the things you put your, you know, like in the cartoons, like people held with their arms and like, is that, is that the type of stockades we're thinking? Do you know like what they look like, these sort of stockades? Um, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen them, but you know, you're probably, uh, on something, but, uh, yeah. Another detail I love is that some of these miners, again, and, and it was cool, this solidarity between these white workers and these black mm-hmm. convicts that, uh, some of them got train tickets to go to Nashville. Oh wow! Um, so, so the the the, the miners were funding the the travel for for freed convicts as well. Yeah, and that's and, amazing. And, yeah, yeah. Go on over to Nashville. That's pretty. That's really fast. I mean, um, that, that's the. So, I mean, I, I'm assuming this story sort of ends after that because the mining companies, you know, saw the error in their ways and they backed <laughs> down and ended the system, right? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> So after after the Halloween night uh, incident, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the governor to to, you know, because of this act of uh, anarchy, as as a lot of the 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 journalists and lawmakers called it at the time, there was pressure on him to do something uh, more with force. But he he kind of sat on it. Winter was coming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, so he waited two months to do anything. And then uh, that's when he started sending state militia and troops to do something about it. So that's when um, on this mountain, which I got to visit, is where the militias, they they brought a Gatling gun uh, with them, which, um, you know, in in this recent of time had been most recently used on uh, Native Americans. And now... Um, they had it up to use on uh, workers, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. 
And and were the workers sort of organizing themselves into militias, or were they trying to flee the violence? They knew that when you're fighting against you know yeah. hundreds of armed militia, that you're not going to do conventional uh, warfare. So a lot of it looked like what we might call like guerrilla warfare. You know, mm-hmm. uh, sneaking around. Um, doing things like late at night, doing things where you know that they're not stationed. So they, they try to do things chill because, you know, these are, these are the militia, these are the army, yeah. these are the guys with the guns. So you're not going to, you're not going to challenge them head on. Um, but I mean, you know, this, this did have like a, a significant effect, like just like, you know, we talked about, you know, a story I wrote for Jack in a little while was about the fence cutting wars here in Texas. You know, they lose that war um the the coal mining wars in in west virginia like they lose that war in the sense of like you know tactically they're outgunned by the state um but it had a big effect on on politics and you know what what happened sort of after in the aftermath of of this conflict uh i should also say that there was like a couple of direct yeah um uh well i'd say like kind of small skirmishes and battles And, and at one point the miners do actually um capture uh a militia commander um and uh hold them hostage but yeah their their successes uh are definitely short-lived and um i don't have an exact number of of people who died in in this war but uh there definitely was uh more casualties um on the minor side uh than than the the state uh, militia authorities but um yeah, it, it didn't it didn't necessarily go, uh, you know, even even after all of this, this stuff happened, uh, the miners, it was a slow it was a slow victory because, I mean, what happened with a lot of them is they got blacklisted um, mm. from working anywhere else. And so a lot of them, uh, <laughs> a lot of them had misery for the next few years. But uh, part of what happened, which was good, was that. Uh, the governor was up for re-election, and so one of his opponents was campaigning on this issue uh, mm. specifically and saying that you know this is sort of the shame of Tennessee. I don't know if you uh, you have that um, ad that I sent you. Yes, uh, let me pull it up really quick. Because I, I Sorry, think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I put it somewhere. Here it is. Um. Excuse me. Tennessee's shame, convicts in the Coal Creek mines. Yeah. So this governor candidate who ended up winning was campaigning on this on this issue. And so, um, you know, again, capital had a lot of power. And so this issue uh, lingered. And it wasn't until 1865 where where they actually uh, stopped this particular system um and and how and you know just going back to what we were talking about at the beginning i mean so effectively what's ended is the convict lease system but the ability of prison labor to be utilized for other kind of money-making opportunities still existed in some form or another yeah unfortunately like uh, i mean for the for a lot of the miners in this area it was good news to them mm-hmm. because they were able to work in these mines and uh, to make a decent living eventually, you know? Um, but yeah, again, so what the state did, and I think it's called like the Lone Star, they had a state controlled mine 
So you're no longer leasing them. You are just mm-hmm. using them directly. Uh, and that's, you know, you hear a lot about the uh, the chain gangs and things like mm-hmm. that. Like mm-hmm. um, prisoners were being used for labor for a long time and still, again, uh, being used in similar ways even today. So like this is this is such a, a fascinating story. One because like it's it's very you know inspiring. People really brave. You know while they didn't get everything that they might might have wanted, it made a difference in the lives of of people by ending this this form of exploitation. Um, Although you know, I will I will say that you know you could you could say that the miners did have an impact because Tennessee was the first state to stop this practice in eighteen ninety five, and you know. In the end, um, it didn't totally end convict uh, uh, labor, but it was an important victory at the time. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it's it's a huge one, especially, like, you know, getting those private hands directly out of control of, 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 of human beings. I mean, is, is a truly frightening merging of, of, like, capital and slave labor uh, to think about developing, in, in which, which it was, like, very clearly developing in the South. But, you know, like you have all these factors, right? It's like this really incredible like labor struggle, um, this really great like cross-racial struggle at a time, you know, when a lot of people won't expect that kind of thing, like real human solidarity being shown between people. Because, you know, if anything, the way that this story could you could imagine a version of this story where it just sort of inspires like race hate crimes, you know, because like the miners are pissed at the system. They create animus. And that's sort of what these things are typically intended to do. But the these miners having that kind of, you know, long-sightedness being able to understand what was being done to them to actually directly wage war in the coal companies and try to free these convicts i mean is a really inspiring um story and it's also like you think is really important in places like the south where a lot of people don't recognize sometimes uh this this labor history but you were just up there and i have some of the the photos that you took because i think it's also notable it's like you know, these things are sort of lost to history and it's not too accidental. So could you talk a little bit about how this, you know, the process of this story sort of being unearthed again uh, for people to understand, you know, the history of the part of the, the country that they live in? Sure. Um, so I happen to reach out because, I, I, you know, I just did a little Googling because I wanted to come up there, uh, see it in person. And it's mostly been this one organization called the, the Coal Creek Watershed Foundation. And and part of what's interesting about them is that they didn't intend, they're not leftists, they didn't intend this to be like, we want to uh, honor the workers or anything like that. Uh, they, you know, were engineers or worked for mining companies and um, wanted to preserve uh, this area and some of the other history. Uh, in fact, they, they also have a memorial for the miners, the Welsh miners who died uh, a couple decades later. But um, so, you know, they showed me maps from the 1960s where this mountain, where uh, this uh, this uh, militia base was for the Coal Creek War, like the sort of the crux of this war, was a was a trash dump. Was a, mm-hmm. <laughs> was just a bunch of garbage. Um, and it didn't it didn't change until the early 2000s. That's when they started to make efforts to preserve this. So, you know, if if you would have came there 20 years ago, you just saw what a saw a, a pile of trash. You wouldn't have thought anything about it. So um, this group uh, started cleaning it up. They actually 
uh, purchased some of the property because it was like privately owned. Um, and they did cleanup efforts and then they worked with the state to recognize this is a historic site. Uh, they installed signs to tell you a little bit, um, the history of the Coal Creek. They even did replica cannons. And then Barry, who I met in Carol Moore, they do like, uh, tours with high school, with Tennessee high school students. And, and Barry puts on his like Welsh minor costume and they, they give him a little taste of the history. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's awesome. Oh, you're it's, unmuted. It, sorry, okay. yeah. Um, I mean, it's 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 really fascinating. It's something that we love um, being able to cover here on Love Reckoning. And thank you so much, Ryan, for um, you know putting this out in in, in Jacobin and uh, joining us today to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, thank you for having me. I again, I'm a big history buff, and I love labor history, so it's excited to write about this. Well, hell yeah, we'll Thanks, we'll, we'll put links below for people to follow Ryan and and all of their work. And uh, yeah, man, really appreciate it and hope to do it again soon sometime. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> yeah, man. Interesting. The last, the last uh, uh, part of that. Um last part of that uh, story is where he talks about the sort of like uncovering of this history. Uh, I think, did he say it was, am I misremembering? Um, it was like a landfill. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the folks uh, who had uh, uncovered it weren't like looking for a labor history story. They were just looking for what your, their history was and surprise, you know, um, uh, it turns out that it's uh, it has a, a struggle, a class struggle element to it. Yeah, big surprise there. Um, well, we're bearing the lead a little bit. I mean, there's some big news. Um, I don't know everyone's getting their stuff back out again. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, our wet boy, uh, Mr. Donald Trump, who had a big announcement uh, while we were talking some labor history. The Trump train has left the station, folks. It's back on. He's, he's Matt and I are trying to buy a house, so we're, we're, we're announcing our flip right now. Mr. Trump, uh, uh, we are here to report uh, for <laughs> the anti-DeSantis operation specifically. Uh, look, we're mercenary in that regard. Uh, we can't promise any sort of allegiance after that. I know that might be a problem. Uh, we'll take our money up front. Um, and uh, Yeah, take our money uh, up front, please. <laughs> That's how you negotiate the deal. We learned it from reading your book. Um, exactly. Or the deal. Yeah, we'll be jumping over the post game. Good access at patreon.com slash left reckoning. You can leave us a message at 1940-289-7234. We're going to be talking that. We also got some good uh, found footage of uh, genius Tim Poole. Um, we'll be taking your questions and calls and also talking a little bit about this other Musk legal news about Tesla as well. It's a little in the weeds, but it's very interesting uh, to check it out. So we'll be over there pretty quickly. So jump over to patreon.com slash left reckoning. We'll see you there. Peace.